Last week we gave an introduction to the book of Ephesians, and we said Ephesians is uh, such a theologically rich book. There is so much good teaching um, in this book, and it is an epistle that was written to uh, the churches around Ephesus, and we put up the map of Ephesus to kind of see where that is. However, kind of what distinguishes Ephesians uh, from maybe a book like Galatians or 1 Corinthians is that it was written to a church, but it, it, does, it lacks the significant detail that those other churches do, that they were dealing with specific issues that was going on within their congregation. Ephesians is more of a general type letter, uh, which means it was probably a letter that was not pointed at any one particular group of people, but circulated among area churches uh, in the area of Ephesus because it's principles that apply uh, in a general sense to all churches uh, in that day and in our day as well. And it does deal, we see some of the recurring themes, but just not as specific as we did before. Uh, we said this is one of Paul's prison epistles. He wrote this letter while he was uh, in prison, and it was sent and circulated around the area to, to the churches. And we're going to dig into the text today of, these, of this uh, wonderful book. It's six chapters. We should be able to finish our overview uh, today. But we begin in chapter 1, and we're going to just walk through. Um, if you've got an outline on your way in, we're outlined it here. It follows the outlines in the book, so if you have a book, it kind of follows the outline that's in the book as well. But our first section that we come to here in chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 14, Paul begins this letter with a praise unto God for his spiritual blessings to the body of Christ and to those who are in Christ. And this chapter is worth its weight in gold. Just these few verses. How this book starts out is marvelous because it shows the mighty redemptive work of Jesus. And I've kind of shared my story on occasions, kind of going through some of the teaching. We learn from children, you know, Jesus died for my sins. You know, if I pray, Jesus will save me. And, but what does that really mean? And I'll admit there was a time that even as a young minister, I didn't even understand what all Jesus dying on the cross for me meant. We know he died for my sins, he paid the penalty of my sins, that I could be saved and I could go to heaven. But I didn't realize, and it has been a series of growth in understanding all that Jesus accomplished for me at the cross and who I am today based upon what he did. Because we all still look and judge ourselves many times by what we see and what we do. We rarely see ourselves from the perspective of the finished work of Christ. And in one aspect, in our positional aspect of Christ, we are complete in Him. We are holy and righteous and perfected in Him. When He looks at us, He is not seeing our, our sin. He's seeing us cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of God. That's how He sees us. And that's who we are positionally. That's who we are in Christ. That's the truth of us. But yet we still walk in this world. And we still fall short at times, and we're still growing, and we're still being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So there's a positional truth of who we are in Christ, and it's true of us. We are forgiven in Him. We are righteous in Him and holy in Him and clean in Him. But yet there's a practical outworking of that 
So now that I am the righteousness of God in Christ, now that I am forgiven, how do I live and walk that out every day? And um, Ephesians does a wonderful job of showing us our position in Christ. And we talked about those, that term in Christ last week. And no greater example of showing us the truths of who we are in Jesus Christ than these first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians. For he starts out by saying in verse number three of Ephesians chapter one, blessed, and I'm going to read today, I usually read from my NIV today, I'm going to read from uh, King James because I have it all marked up for Ephesians, so I know what I'm talking about here, that one, so I can see my little notes and and everything, so if it's a little bit different today, that's why. Um, But verse number three in Ephesians chapter one says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, the first thing we have to do is understand the depth of that statement. You know, and I want to hammer this point home. I don't want to stay here the whole time because we'll never leave chapter one if I don't, because it's just that good. But we have to see the truth. First of all, this is kind of a reciprocal. God has blessed us. So therefore, Paul is proclaiming a blessing unto God. Blessed be the God who has blessed us. We recognize his blessings and it causes us to bless him. It causes us to praise him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. That is a past tense word. It has already happened. You are blessed with these blessings in Christ Jesus. It's not a maybe. It's not a one day. It's not if I'm good enough. If I grow enough, it is something that has already happened. That's the good news of Jesus. You know, when we turn on the news at night and watch the news, if, if you watch the news, they tell you the things that have happened. What they should do is tell you the things that have happened that day. We're here to report the news. Somebody robbed the convenience store. You know, somebody did this. This happened here. There was an accident on I-95. And it tells you things that have happened they not potential, what news is by his definition, it's not potential, it's not things that might happen, those are predictions, but news is things that has happened. The good news is what has happened in Jesus Christ. It's what he did for us. And that's true because of him and because of his work on the cross. So in one sense, it is finished. We are complete in him. But yet that finished work is being worked out every day practically by the Holy Spirit in our lives. So with these blessings, he has blessed us. Then it says, with all spiritual blessings. All spiritual blessings, not little by little. The scripture says all that we need for life and godliness, he has given us. He's given us everything that we need. He is not withholding anything. Everything in Christ is a gift. And it is freely given to be freely received by faith. So he has blessed us. These are things that have already happened, already true. With all spiritual blessings, he's withholding nothing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this isn't earthly blessings. It's not promising a new car or a fat paycheck or everything's going to go right in your life or you're going to be always healthy. It's not material things. It's spiritual things. It's things that are true of us in the spirit. And when we go through this, this has 
really nothing to do with us. We are recipients of this. So I've got listed here on the paper, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, now about nine different things that this uh, chapter mentions. So the first thing, and these are just, we are chosen, verse four, he, as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse five, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6, and um, uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace, uh, King James says, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. By his grace, we are accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Verse number eight, which he abounded toward us in all wisdom and understanding, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So just right there before we hit verse 10, Right there, it says we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, predestined for adoption to his children. By grace, he made us accepted. We have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins and according to his grace. Uh, he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and understanding and knowledge and the mystery of his will. All of those are spiritual blessings that he has blessed us with. Now, there wasn't one thing listed in here that we have to do. In order to get these, the only thing is to receive by faith in Jesus Christ and through his finished work. This is true of us. Chosen in him, predestined, uh, he's made us accepted, uh, he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us according to the riches of his grace, not according to how good we are. Uh, he's given us wisdom and understanding, the knowledge of his will. All of these are spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And then in verse 10, if you notice, and here's kind of the the core of it, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both that which are in heaven and in earth, even in him. And that's the goal of all this, to reconcile all things unto himself, to gather together in one, all that is in heaven and earth. And that's very important, laying this foundation. Then in verse 11, he goes on to say, we have obtained an inheritance we have a spiritual inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worked all things to the counsel of his will, uh, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. In verse 13, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believe. So that, that, that's the condition. There's the condition. You heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. And when you believed, you were made a new creation. He made your spirit alive with him. All of these things are true of you. You received forgiveness and redemption and, and grace and, and wisdom and understanding. And then it says he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. So he wrapped all this together and sealed it with his Holy Spirit which is the earnest, the down payment of our eternal inheritance, the redemption of the purchased possession. That means he's put his Holy Spirit 
upon us as his seal. And all of this is his spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. This is true of us, all spiritual blessings. And then the good news is these spiritual blessings have come upon the Jew and Gentile alike. It's not just one or the other. It's come upon all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So I go back to this chapter a lot. Whenever I feel discouraged, whenever I feel not not good enough, wherever I feel condemned, I go and read this. And I say, this is who I am in Christ. This is what he did for me on the cross. This is his finished work. This is truth. This is true. The way I feel, the way I see myself, oftentimes that's not the truth, at least not according to the gospel. So he gives these spiritual blessings, and then he moves on in chapter 1, down from 15 through 23. And this is a prayer, this is a thanksgiving and prayer that he's praying for the church. And what he prays for the church, he prays for wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and revelation. That they would know him, that they would know their own calling in him, and they would know his power. So the three things that Paul prays for is that they would have wisdom and revelation in, that they would know Christ, that they would know him by experience, that they would know their calling, and they would know his power. And this power is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And it shows that Christ rules as the head of his body. So let's read in verse number 17, Paul says of chapter 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. So I want you to get the picture. Chapter 1 through verse 14, he's saying, this is what's true of you. And then in chapter in verse 15 on, he's praying, now I pray that your eyes will be open to these truths, that you will truly see and walk in all of these things that God, through Christ, has done for you, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may fully realize and know what Christ has done for you. And that's a powerful prayer. And I would, I would encourage us all to continue to pray that prayer. Every day, God, open my eyes and enlighten me to who I am in you, that I would change the way I, I see myself, that I would change the way that that, I, that changes the way that you live, that changes the way that you act, that changes the way that you relate to others when you have a proper understanding. And then he says in verse uh, 20 of chapter 1, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, showing the, the majesty of Christ. And he set him in verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, so Christ is above all, not only in this world, but that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet. So Christ reigns and has authority and rules. He has put, now notice, we're still talking past tense. This is already true. You know, I know it looks like the devil's winning, but Christ has already won. That's the truth of the gospel. And has put all things under his feet. 
Verse 22, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So Christ rules and he rules as the head of the church. Now, I love how verse 23, you can't miss this. This is how verse 23 defines the church. He gave to be head over all things to the church, verse 23, which is his body. And last week we talked about the church is the body of Christ on the earth. It's not like the body of Christ on the earth. It is. The church is the body of Christ. He's the head. He rules and reigns from heavenly places. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings. He's given us the same spirit that raised him from the dead, that the same power that he had to proclaim the gospel and see lives change. And he rules as the head over the body. So the church is his body, the fullness of him. That fills all in all. The church is the fullness of him that fills the earth today. Not one person, but a many-membered body of Christ as Christ is the head. So he's saying, this is what Christ has done for you in salvation. I pray that your eyes would be open to see who you are in him, to see his power, to see your calling in him, and to see that Christ rules, and to see that he's the head over the body. And this body, the church, is his body that fills all of the earth. So he's laying this foundation for the body and how important the body of Christ is. And he's laying the foundation for how important the unity of the body would be. How important the unity of the body would be. So he's continuing this theme going on into chapter 2. In chapter 2, he talks about the reconciliation that we have with God, being reconciled unto God. And he talks about reconciliation in two ways. In the first part of chapter 2, he talks about reconciliation to God through Christ, how we are individually reconciled to God through Christ. And the last part, he talks about the reconciliation of the Jew and the Gentile coming together. So chapter 2 is all about reconciliation. So he starts out in chapter 2. He says, And you hath he made alive, hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So he said, you were, again, there, there's a past tense word, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And you walked in those trespasses and sins according to the ways of the world, according to the prince and the power of the air, and according to the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. He's telling them that's who you were. And then he says in verse number four, and here's a wonderful scripture, but God, who is rich in mercy, Here's who you were. You were dead in your sins, totally dead. And you lived according to those sins. And you lived according to the prince and the power of the air and the, the spirit of, of disobedience. And you were following the lust and the, the desires of the flesh. That's who you, you were. But verse 4 says, But God, who was rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath past tense, quickened us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. That's a beautiful picture. That's a beautiful picture. You know, and I think there, there's a big discussion and there could be a very large discussion in this chapter because there's two major schools of thought. I, I really don't want to get off track here. But there's two major schools of thought as far as when we talk about the words God chose us and predestination and 
making us alive. There is a Calvinistic mindset where, you know, God pre-selects individuals for salvation. And God makes them alive and gives them faith and gives them the gift of repentance and they respond. And there's others that, that he doesn't. That's the Calvinistic side. The Calvinistic side highlights the mighty working of God in salvation and how little we have to do with it. Then you have the Arminian side. And the Arminian side says, well, God is sovereign in his choosing and all that, but man has a free will and has a choice. Therefore, man can make a choice when, when, when that grace comes to either receive it or, or reject it. Um, and those are kind of, we, we kind of define churches and individuals based on that. Um, and I, th- I think there's, I mean, there's positives in both and there's negatives in both. Um, the negative of the Calvinistic side for me is I do not believe that God has pre-selected every individual who would be saved and who would not be saved, and neither of them have a choice in it. I, I don't believe that. However, I just don't think, on the Armenian side, I just don't think that anybody can wake up any day and say, oh, I just think I want to be saved today. Or, hey, I think I just want to give it up today. I, I, I don't think we have that much power because I think salvation does start with God. And I don't think we can come to Christ unless the Spirit draws us to Christ. And I do believe the Spirit illuminates our eyes. And I do believe that, that um, Calvinists take away all of the free will of man, but yet I also believe Arminians take away all the power of God in salvation. Because on the Armenian side, we choose God, and oftentimes, and it carries the thought, we are in control of our own salvation. So as long as we live right and we keep asking for forgiveness right and we keep cleansing ourselves, the burden is on us. I don't believe the burden is all on us. I believe that we receive it by faith. We, we get saved by faith. We stay saved by faith. And we, we finish by, by faith. So one overemphasize, or one de-emphasizes the responsibility of man. One de-emphasizes the total, or the total power of God. I think it's, it's, it's a mixing of both. But salvation begins with God. And here's a great point. When we were dead, He made us alive. We didn't choose. Dead people can't come to life on their own. That doesn't happen. When you're dead, you're dead. When you're dead, you're dead. But I, so I believe God initiates salvation. I believe God touches that hard, dead-hearted person and convicts their heart and begins to soften that heart and convicts them that their eyes could slowly be opened and that they would have the opportunity to fulfill the conviction power of the Holy Spirit and to respond to that. So, you know, I, I believe there's, there's positive and negative qualities in both. But, you know, from us that has, you know, come from a free will side, we also be careful n- not to take away the power of God in salvation. Uh, because it is by grace that we are saved through faith and not of ourselves. And we are saved today because God sovereignly came to us to convict us and to call us unto himself. No man can come to the Father unless the Spirit draw him. So God does have a significant work to play in salvation. And we have a response to play in salvation as well. And this shows us that when we were dead in sins... He quickened us together, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And He raised us up together and made us sit together. I love all those togethers. 
In verse 5, he, he quickened us together. In verse 6, he raised us together. He made us sit together in heavenly places. That's where you are spiritually. You are in Christ. And um, I remember I was, I was in a restaurant one time, me and a buddy of mine, and we were, um, we were ordering, and, and I don't even know how this got brought up when we were ordering Chinese food. But um, anyway, my friend says something like, well, he said to the waitress, well, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And she said, I'm present with the Lord right now. <laughs> and I thought, that is awesome. She had a great comeback. Uh, but we are seated together with him in heavenly places. Um, that in the ages to come, he would show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ. Verse 8, for by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any, would, lest any should boast. So our salvation is totally by grace through faith, not of works. But yet, verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So emphasizing grace does not de-emphasize good works. What emphasizing grace does is de-emphasize the need for works for salvation. But grace should always emphasize the good works that are produced out of us after or because of salvation. So we don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. So because we are his workmanship and he created us for a purpose to do good works for the kingdom. So he's telling these churches in Ephesus, this is how you were. You walked according to the course of the world. You were lost, but God made us together with Christ to sit with Christ. He gave us his grace. And then he moves into a corporate setting. So in chapter 2, um, in verse number 11, he says, Wherefore remember that you, being in time past, that's who they were before, Gentiles in the flesh, you were called uncircumcision. That was an unflattering term. Uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, the Jews. He says that at that time, you were without Christ. When you were lost out in the world, dead in sin, living as Gentiles, apart from all the covenants of God, you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope, verse number 12. And you were without God in the world. That's who you were. You were hopeless. Verse 13, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are now made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. He's what makes peace in the midst of us. And he has made both Jew and Gentile, believing Jew, believing Gentile, he's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Verse 15, he abolished in his flesh the enmity the law of commandments contained in ordinances to make of himself two separate people to make of himself one new man. So there's, and we talked about this in Romans, there is one covenant people of God. We don't have the day, to, the, the Jews with one separate covenant and the Gentiles or the church with one separate covenant. God took the believing Jews, the believing Gentiles, he ended the old covenant by fulfilling it and he brought the two and reconciled them into one body to share together in the promises and the blessings of God. And it says that verse 16, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. That means the natural Jew has no advantage over me and I have no advantage over him. We all must come to God the same way and that is through the bloodstained cross of Jesus Christ. 
Christ. No more getting in by the law, no more getting in by Moses, no more getting in by our good works or any of that. Any of that. We come to God by one way, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And by Him, verse 18 says, we have access by one Spirit unto the Father. He says to those Gentiles, therefore you are no more strangers, you are no more foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone, and in whom all the building, all the temple, is fitly framed together, grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also were builded together for a habitation of God. Now, those are some deep scriptures, but they're so very important. Because it talks about the Jew and the Gentile not being separate, but coming together in one body through faith. And it says they, they are built together, a temple unto the Lord. That's the church. That's the true temple of God, the true Israel of God, the true people of covenant, the true people of God in the world. You see, Jesus told them in the Gospels, he said, look at this physical building called a temple. He said, that building's going to be destroyed. He said, there will not be one stone left upon another. And he said, all this will happen upon this generation. And within 40 years of Jesus speaking those words, the temple was destroyed. The physical Jewish temple was destroyed. And to this day, there has been no physical temple for Judaism since that moment. They tried to rebuild it in times past. It didn't happen. Supernatural things happened, and they could never rebuild the temple. Um, and in fact, now the Muslims have come and built their temple right on top of where the temple has stood. So no temple, physical Jewish temple. However, according to the Bible, God does not dwell in temples made with man's hands. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, according to the book of Hebrews, there is still a temple on the earth today. But this temple is not a physical building. This temple is a people. The carriers of God's Spirit, the habitation of God, is God's people. It is the church. And the Scripture says here that Jew and Gentile together, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ is the chief cornerstone. He talked about that in, in the Gospels. The apostles talk about God being the cornerstone in the book of Acts. Now, Jesus being the cornerstone, we're not going to finish this today, so I'm just going to lay back and just, just have a good time. Um, Jesus being the cornerstone. Now, Jesus went to the Pharisees, and he said, I am the stone, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And the apostles went in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, and says Christ is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. What they were saying was, and we don't pick it up because we, we're not in that that culture and in that day, what he was saying was to these Pharisees and chief priests that ran the temple, he's saying God is going to build a new temple. God's going to build a new temple. But this time, Christ is the chief cornerstone. This temple will not be standing anymore. You who control and run this temple, you won't control and run this next temple because Christ is the cornerstone. Now, you've rejected Christ as the cornerstone. But he is the cornerstone of God's new temple that he is building. And this new temple that God is building is these believing Jews and believing Gentiles together. And it says the whole building, fitly framed together, grows unto a holy temple. And this holy temple is for the habitation of God. So there is still a temple on the earth today, but it is 
the body of believers, the Jew and the Gentile believers, the body of Christ, the church, the covenant people of God, the true Israel of God, the people of faith, filled with the Holy Spirit. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's what he's trying to show here. So I, I, just, I want you to see the line of thought. Chapter 1, here's the blessings in Christ. The end of chapter 1, that your eyes will be open. Christ is the head of the body. Chapter 2, here's how you Gentiles were brought to faith. And when you're brought to faith, you are joined together in the covenants of God with the believing Jews and you together. The wall of partition is, is torn down and you are now one body in Christ as a holy temple. So the whole line of thought and I said originally when we got into um, the, the Ephesians or to the letters, we pick a verse here and a verse and a verse there, but I want to see the train of thought. So the whole emphasis of Ephesians is one body and being one people of God together. And he's showing this, this argument, if you will, of how it, it fits together. Uh, and it's a beautiful uh, thing that he's doing um, here. So uh, we come to chapter 3. We come to chapter 3, and still talking about the reconciliation. And Paul talks about his role in the um, reconciling work of Christ. So Paul begins chapter 3, and we'll probably, we'll probably stop here, chapter 3, because there's just so much more to go. We'll, we'll pick that up next week. But chapter 3, um, he says, For this cause, verse 1 of chapter 3, so going back up, For this cause, Jew and Gentile being together, one body, one temple, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which has given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words. So Paul introduces this idea of a mystery. Now the biblical definition of a mystery is something that was previously hid from generations before, but has now been revealed. So Paul is saying this is a mystery. It was hidden previously, but now through the Spirit of God it is being made known. In verse 4 he says, Whereby when you read, uh, when you, read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. And it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here's the mystery. Verse number 6. This is the whole mystery of the church. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jewish believers who God had made the promises to. God made the promise of the new covenant with Israel. He made the promise that I will forgive your sins and, and you will be my people. I will be your, your God. I will bring you into this new covenant. All the promises that God made to Israel that would be fulfilled in Christ, he now says that the Gentiles would now be brought into those promises and that new covenant and would be fellow heirs and of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. He says in verse 7, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. Uh, so he goes on to talk about you know, his part and his role in, in the calling of, 
of the Gentiles as well. And he's saying this is displaying the glory of God. The Gentiles being included in the promises of God. The truth of one body in Christ. This is, this is displaying the power of God, the glory of God, the wisdom of God. And Paul in this chapter, in, in the last part of, um, of chapter 3, is declaring this praise unto God. This is one of those things that Paul just stops and he begins to, to thank God for and he begins to praise God for. That believers, now that you're together, now that you've had this common faith, now that you're brought together in one body, now that you've been made fellow heirs, you're, you're the temple of God, now the challenge, he begins to shift to now that all this is true, it is imperative that you keep the unity of the body. Because that's how important it is. He says, this is the mystery that was hid from all ages past, that the Gentiles would be included. He says, so now that you've had this shared experience, you've come together in Christ, and this is the mystery hidden from all previous ages, that Gentiles are together in one body. He says, it is imperative that you keep the unity of the body that you all are one, that you treat each other as one. So now he's going to kind of shift from these theological truths of our salvation in Christ, uh, the body of Christ, uh, our salvation by grace through faith, our reconciliation into one body, our reconciliation unto God, to now it's imperative that you stay as one body that you stay as one body. So he prays here in the end of chapter 3. He says in verse 14, because he enters this, this prayer, and he prays two things and gives praise for, for something. He's, he prays that they would know God's love and that God's love would fill them and a praise unto God who can do more than they could ever ask or think. So he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, for this cause I bow my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, the whole family, one family, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. So the first prayer that he prays back in chapter 1, he prays that they would have wisdom and revelation and their eyes would be enlightened to a truth. That's number one. He's praying that their eyes would be enlightened to the truth, who they are in Christ. Now, the second, that, that's the position. That's the position. Now he's praying for the practical. Here's the truth of the position. It doesn't change. It's in Christ. But here's the practical. So now he prays, verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his grace, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of His love, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you would be filled with the fullness of God. So he says in chapter 1, here's what I pray, that your eyes will be enlightened, and you would have understanding and revelation who you are in Christ 
and all that he's done for you. And he's placed you into this body. The second thing I pray for is that you would keep that unity and that you would keep that body of being in that one body of Christ by being filled with God's love. Now, he uses some amazing terms here. And sometimes this is one of those you can read over. I don't want us to read over this. Verse 16, that you would be strengthened with might by His Spirit. Now you can take that little phrase and you can run with it. I I can be mighty in the Lord. I can be strong in the Lord. I can do do mighty things in the Lord. that's That's a powerful term. You know, and then verse 19, he ends verse 19 with, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Oh, how great is it to be filled with the fullness of God? Holy Spirit, just fill me with your fullness and your power so I can be some, some great super Christian and, and I can be filled with the full. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? That, that must be amazing. But you're missing what that substance is. To be filled with the fullness of God is to be filled with the love of God. And that's what we miss. It's not just knowing a bunch of scriptures. It's not just coming to church. It's not just just doing things for God. It's being filled with love. That's powerful. That's simple. But if I I heard a a teacher say one time, he said, said, we all want to know things of the Bible that we don't know. You know, who who are the ten horns and the, the five heads coming up out of the sea in Revelation? I don't know. He said, the problem with us Christians, our trouble are not the things we don't know about the Bible or the mysteries we don't know. It's the things we do know and we don't apply. Like the simple principle of love and loving one another. We don't have to wrestle with that. We know what that means. What we have to wrestle with is actually doing it and to keeping the unity of the body. So to be strengthened with might, to have Christ dwelling in our hearts, to be filled with the fullness of God is to be rooted, grounded, comprehending, knowing, and walking in love. And he says, that is how you will remain and be edified as one body in Christ. That love will overcome. So to be strengthened, that Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, that we be filled with the fullness of God has to do with love. So And listen, all these great theological truths that he's woven through and he's expounded upon ultimately mean nothing if we're not walking in love. Paul talks about that in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. So he ends chapter 13. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So he ends with that simple doxology. That Christ is able to exceed and of all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. Now the power that works in us, of course, is the Holy Spirit. But the power that works in us is also love. And I look at this differently now. This is just me. I look at this differently now. I used to preach, I used to take verse 20. I, love, I used to love to preach verse 20. God can do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Now that's the first thing we quote, right? God can do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And we can preach that and we preach it big that God can do anything. He can go beyond. So think big because God can do it bigger than you think. You know, if, if you can think it, it's too small. God can do it big. But then it says, according 
Stay with me. God can do exceeding, that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. God can do exceeding above all we ask or think, but what he will, he's able to do it. But what he will do is according to something. And it's according to the power that works in us. So then I used to preach it like this. Well, God can do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask for according to the power that works in us. So we need to have the power of God and we need to have the power of prayer. We need to have the power of faith and we need to do this and do that. You know, so we need to power it through. But today I read this and I read it like this. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. But only according to the power that works in us. And the power that works in us is the power of love. So now it's not about our great spirituality or our ability to pray harder or do more. It's about our ability to love. And that the true power and demonstration of God is to love one another. Take the instance, just take, as Glenn mentioned, our prayer request, request think of our nation and how divided. The church is divided. We let the church be divided over worldly issues. And we pray for revival. You know how revival will come? According to the power of love that works in us. We are called to participate in the reconciliation of God to the world. You know how that's happened? Love. For God so loved the world. The greatest demonstration of the power of God that we could show people today is that we have unity amongst our diversity. And that through no matter what, we will, ne- we will not let anything rob us of the love of Christ that would fill us. That's the greatest testimony. When people want to talk about you know, people being healed and raised from the dead and all this, this stuff, I believe the simple, the simple way to do it it's through the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. That's how we are filled with the fullness of God. That's how we're strengthened in our spirit. That's how the God that is able to do exceedingly abundantly can do exceedingly abundantly because it's according to the power that works in us. And he ends verse 21, unto him be glory in the church. When all this happens, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end through the people he was talking to and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation on down to our generation today and all the generations that should come after us. That God would receive glory because his power is on display. And the power that's on display is the power that we know the love of Christ. We comprehend his breadth, length, depth, height. We're rooted and grounded in it. That's, that's what the scripture says. And you see how even me, and I'll admit my faults to you as a preacher and a Bible interpreter, how I've taken verse 20 and I've preached it many different ways. But when you look at it in all its context, it all ends up being about unity and the glue. We love. For Galatians tells us that faith works by love. Paul says the greatest of these is love. Jesus says greater love has no man 
than this. Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. I think sometimes we can be so spiritual, we miss the simple thing that's right in front of our face. And we all want to see the power of God move. Maybe the power of God will move when we love like Jesus loves.